Good morning. Good morning. Um, I was thinking when Peter was saying there about um, the cold, if you are a, a student or a newcomer to, to Aberdeen, then please don't be, be put off the cold and don't lose uh, faith if you haven't brought an extra jacket. Anyone who knows my dad knows that he wears shorts all year round, right through the Christmas period, right through the festive period, through the, the coldest and the darkest nights. And um, probably this time, uh, or, or December, just last year, we were going sledging, and my dad, he turned up in his shorts. And um, I said to him, Dad, what, what are you doing? Surely not this time. And he goes, Derek, the cold is just a state of mind. So, Peter, I say that to you. cold is just a state of mind. Good morning, church. A very warm welcome to you this morning, especially of those of you who aren't here with us regularly. It's a, a, a pleasure and a privilege to, to have you along. If you're watching uh, online with us again, also a warm welcome to you. Um, over the last few weeks, as Peter said, we've been going through um, Paul's letter to the Romans, um, the gospel of God, as Willie introduced it to us uh, in September. And today we're going to continue on in that, in chapter 2. Um, from where Kevin left us last week. That's at the, the sectional divide of chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible with you this morning, it would be a good time for you to, to turn to that text. We're going to begin at verse 12, and we're going to read through to the chapter's conclusion. That's Romans 2 and verse 12. You'll see it up on the screen behind me. Um, and I'm going to read it probably slower um, than what I normally would because when I was preparing for this morning, I had to read this passage a dozen times before uh, I started to write. So let's read together. It's titled God's Judgment and the Law. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thought accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind a light to those who are in darkness an instructor to the foolish a teacher of children having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhors idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law 
will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for today. We give you thanks for this opportunity to to meet as a church, to meet as a whole church family this morning uh, with the the children and all the noise and joy that they, they bring. Father, we thank you for them and we pray that you would be with them this morning in their studies. And Lord, we pray that you be with us here as we turn to your word to to this uh, letter to the Romans, Father, and that you would speak through your word. Father, we pray that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers, Lord, that we wouldn't be like the man who looks at his face in the mirror and forgets what he looks like, Father, but that we would actually put into practice what what we read and understand today. Father, we pray that you would reveal more of yourself to us. Um, and that you would speak to our hearts this morning in your precious son's name. Amen. Our passage of scripture this morning is a continuation of what Kevin um, spoke about last week. And indeed, it's a continuation of this, this whole picture and the argument that Paul has, has begun to thread through his letter to the Romans. As we heard last week in verses 1 to 5, Paul had pointed out that the people in his day with high moral standards, especially those of his own kind, the Jews, were guilty of hypocrisy. The Jews, he says, point the finger at what they would see as the immoral Gentiles, those that were mentioned in chapter 1. But in doing so, Paul says, they indict themselves because they are actually guilty of doing the same kind of things. And he goes on then to explain in verses 6 and 10, or 2.10, that the judgment of both Jew and Gentile is going to be according to their deeds, not according to their heritage or, or whatever religious advantage they would take. Jews and Gentiles will receive or not receive eternal life on the same basis. Do their deeds, do their actions, do their, their thoughts stand up in testimony? to the faith that they claim to have, because it is on that that they will be judged. And in verse 11, Paul explains why. He states the truth about what is in God's character and how it gives credibility to this argument. And it is this, read with me verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. This is why God will judge the Jews and the Gentiles not according to their appearance, not according to their circumstances or their cultural or or their religious advantages, but according to something much more intrinsic. This is something fundamental about God's character. It's his impartiality. According to to commentators, this notion of of non-partiality or impartiality is so significant that in the New Testament... The writers actually create a new verb for this word. In our modern day English, it translates as this. God is not a face receiver. 
He is not moved by irrelevant external appearances. He sees through them and he goes right to the heart of the matter. He's not partial to appearance or circumstance. Nobody can break the law and get away with it. No matter how powerful or how clever or how wealthy or how well-networked they are, all are to be judged by the same measure. Just because you have a certain type of face from a certain type of place doesn't mean that it's going to do you any good in your ability to pass the judgment of Christ. And that's an encouraging truth, perhaps, for those of you, like me, who are not of Jewish heritage. But, of course, while it's an encouragement in that sense, it's also a real challenge. And it's a challenge that's applicable to us as Gentiles as it is to any who would be Jewish. And therefore, as we go through our verses this morning, I would like us to, to think about the ways in which this, 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 this text encourages us to act and respond under three headings. Firstly, I think we will look at how we should act out of the knowledge that we glean from this section of text. Secondly, how we should act out of faith in response to this text. And then thirdly, how we should act out of covenant love. Firstly then, acting out of knowledge. From verses 12 through 16, from that point where we we read about God being impartial, we have a quite complicated narrative and structure that we need to read carefully several times to build up the picture. But in essence, what we have here is Paul reaffirming this position that he's had earlier on in the chapter, where there's absolutely no distinction to be had between Jew and Gentile with respect to the ultimate judgment of God. They and we will all be subject to the same judgment. And we have to remember that Paul is writing here to to the church in Rome, a church who at the time were very divided across their Gentile and Jewish lines. Gentiles, for instance, felt very comfortable in their Christian liberty. Meanwhile, you had the Jews who, who perhaps knew Christ, but they still wanted to uphold their Jewish heritage. If you were to continue on reading in in Romans 14, you come to a chapter where it really brings all this to conclusion. And it's saying to the Gentiles, you who think you're the stronger brother, it's incumbent upon you to love what we would term the weaker brother. Those who still want to practice out their Jewish heritage. And really it's a call in that sense for there to be grace amongst the brethren. For you to love each other regardless of your heritage. Don't encourage someone to do something that their conscience condemns. Don't encourage someone to act out of faith. Rather meet your brother and your sister in a place of love. And in this particular section of text, Paul is writing to head off an objection from the Jewish side of the equation. For a Jew listening to this, They may have offered up an argument at this point that would go something like this to Paul. Does it not say that the fact that the Jews are God's chosen people, that they have been given his law as a sign of his covenant, does that not put them in a different position from Gentiles when they both come before God's judgment? Do I as a Jew who knows this law 
not get preferential treatment. Paul responds to this with two counterpoints. The first is this. It is not the simple possession of the law that will excuse the Jew from judgment. Only if the law is actually obeyed fully will it do the Jew any good. We read that in verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Those who sin without the law and those who sin under the law are the Gentiles and Jews respectively. And they will both be condemned by it, it says, because if they're not actual doers of the law, then they won't be justified and therefore righteous before God. And clearly the logic in these verses assumes that there is no person who is able to do this sufficiently so as to become righteous before God. Therefore, ultimately, we are all in the same boat. His second point found in verses 14 and 15, he says this here to the Jew, that actually the Gentiles, well, perhaps they possess more of the law than you actually think. Perhaps they practice more of the Mosaic law than you actually notice. Yes, granted, they didn't actually receive the law like the Jews, but because, verse 14, they, that's the Gentiles, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. In other words, because they follow some of God's standards inherently, perhaps maybe like not murdering or stealing or adultering, they are actually living up to some of God's moral demands by showing occasional conformity to the law. Whilst not actually having the written knowledge of the law, they have, they have some knowledge in their conscience that by and large makes them as effective adopters of the law as the Jews ever are. Thus, Gentile and Jew, ultimately, Again, the person is in the same standing when they come before God in judgment. So Paul makes this point, and he makes it quite articulately. But how does it apply to us here today? We aren't Jews. We weren't given the law. We know that we are Gentiles. And if anything, as I said, there's some encouragement in that, knowing that we are going to be judged in the same way. But what then is the implication for us? Well, the implication is this. Either by our own moral compass, if we aren't saved, or by his grace, if we are, God has revealed to us his law, his perfect law, his law that demands for us to flee from our sin and to run to Jesus. That's the implication in this passage. We are to live in the knowledge that the law doesn't protect us because we cannot keep the law. Even if we were the first hearers, even if we were the Jews, even if we had the best of moral compasses, we still fail the hurdle of total adherence to the law and to its tenets. You don't even have to, to look long and hard at the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses. Maybe we haven't stolen. Maybe we haven't murdered. Maybe we haven't engaged in adultery. 
But we almost have certainly, at some point, desired to get one over on someone. We've almost certainly coveted something that is not ours, or given undue time to lustful thoughts or desires. And that's before we even get to other elements of of the law around honoring mothers and fathers. We can't keep it. Ever since the fall, ever since the first yield unto temptation, we've, we've been corrupted and unable to reconcile ourselves to God. That's why we are to flee from sin and to run to Jesus. That's why we're to, to live in the knowledge that we need Jesus, the knowledge that we need a rescuer, we need a savior. We need to act out of that knowledge. And that knowledge means putting to death all of those things that would ensnare us. It means putting to death all of the things that the law practices as is wrong. Later on in his, this letter to Romans, Paul would go on to say this very thing in chapter 6. Starting at verse 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. As much as we know that we can never meet the law, we also know that because of Jesus, our old selves have been crucified, verse 6. We know that Jesus has conquered death, verse 9. Thus bridging the divide that we can never bridge between a corrupt people and a holy God. So therefore, we must consider ourselves dead to sin. This is how we are to act armed with that knowledge. We are to act in the knowledge that Jesus, and only Jesus, has cleared a way for us. And he calls for us to remain on that way as closely as possible. Acting out of knowledge, now acting out of faith. Verses 17 through through 24 of our passage continue to increase the temperature on those who have heard the law, yet who fail to follow its precepts. We can see that being laid out particularly starkly in verses 21 through 23. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Whilst you preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you not commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you not rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. In some ways, you can start feeling sorry for the Jews here because the focus appears to be very much on them. But we would be misguided to think that the point only applies to them. The point, rather, is that the Jews, along with the entire Gentile world, are sinners like us in need of a gospel, in spite of the Jew having that advantage of the law. 
Remember where, where Paul is coming from in, in, in chapter 1 and where, he, where he's going to. It's that, that verse that, that Willie quoted right at the beginning, that gospel of God. The gospel is the power of God, Romans 1, for salvation to anyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness receive God revealed from faith to faith. In other words, the righteousness that God demands from us, but we do not have and cannot produce in our own sinfulness, he now makes available to us through Christ. If you were to read on in Romans 1, 18, Paul begins the, the explanation why this gospel is so desperately needed by both Jew and Gentile. And he treats first the morally corrupt people in Romans 1. Then he treats the more moral people of the world, those who have probably the highest standards of that time, the Jews. And he shows them that we all need the gospel. He goes from that point and he concludes it up in chapter 3 when he says this, What then are we the Jews any better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So the point here is that we don't isolate the Jews as being uniquely defective. The point is this, that even with their higher standards of moral authority, even though they have possession of God's law, it does not exclude them from the need to hear And believe the gospel of Christ. They are under the power of sin just as the rest of the world is. And Paul aims to show them, and indeed all of us, us, not just them, that we are sinners in need of the salvation that can only come through Jesus. This is an act of love towards Jews and Gentiles even when one would try and interpret it as something different. And this act, this love calls for an act. It calls for an act of faith. It calls for the hearer to step out in faith, believing that only in Jesus, by Jesus, can anyone have assurance of salvation. They can't be saved by the law, Because they can't adhere to the law. We can't be saved by our works. Because our works are insufficient. We can't be saved through through having the knowledge. That we are simply to turn from sinful things. Because you can have all the knowledge in the world. Yet still not have faith. The only saving mechanism is through faith. And friends, this, this truth affects two groups of people. It affects those who have no faith. Without faith, there is no good ending. Without faith, you will not have God's grace. Without faith, you will not experience the hope of eternity. This world, as we know, claims many truths, but not all things can be true. There can only be one truth. There can only be one hope. There is only one exclusive. There is only one way to God. And if you 
don't know God is your God this morning, then I can do nothing but encourage you to think long and hard about Paul's call here to the truth. The second group of people affects are those who have faith. And for, for those people like me, do people know our faith? Who sees our faith? Do we practice our faith? Are we doers and hearers? Do we commit to prayer? Do we read the words with regularity? Do we listen to the prompting of the Spirit when we are to engage in something that is ultimately unhealthy? Do we genuinely love our brothers and our sisters? Do we actively, sacrificially serve this church, this body, this this group of people that you're surrounded by just now? Do you give to this body your time? Do you give to this body your resource? Do you give to this body your talent? Do we show compassion and empathy? Do we love our neighbor? Do we love our friends or our work colleagues? Do we love those who, quite frankly, we would rather never love? Do we embody, practice, nurture, refine, and develop all those practices and marks that we as a church have gone through over the summer period when we looked at the marks of a healthy church? Marks which demonstrate our faith in Him, our faith in the true Him. Will our light in the darkness be a genuine light? Not like the light that the Jew claims to have in this passage. Will it be a light that points others to Christ? Do our friends, do our family, do our co-workers know and see our faith in action? Will we point people to God through how we behave? Will we actively act out of faith? Acting out of knowledge, acting out of faith, and thirdly now then, acting out of covenant love. This, the verses from, from 25 through to the end of the, the chapter um, are with regard to those who are circumcised and uncircumcised. Circumcision, like the law of Moses, was a sign of the Jews' special status. Indeed, some rabbis would even go as far as stating that a person who is not circumcised will go down to Gehenna, their interpretation of the the ultimate place where the wicked would go, a type of, of purgatory. But Paul, on the other hand, asserts that circumcision will only really be of any real value to the Jew if they are also able to adhere to the law. Similar to his argument put forth in in verses 12 and 16, Paul highlights that the Jew who breaks the law will lose the value of their circumcision. Therefore, simply belonging to Israel symbolized in circumcision cannot save a person from God's just judgment. Paul goes on to explain, again echoing his sentiments in verses 12 to 16, that the Gentiles 
would even give the Jews a run for their money in terms of circumcision if they were actually able to uphold the law more fully than the circumcised Jew. For it's compliance to the law over circumcision that has greater bearing. But as no one can adhere to the law, both items become mute points. Because the circumcision that ultimately counts before God is the circumcision of the heart. Verse 29, accomplished by the work of the Spirit. What Paul says here is, of course, not new. If you were to go right back to the Old Testament, indeed to Deuteronomy, you would see this kind of language being used as God demanded a transformation of his people. Deuteronomy 10 and 16 says this, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Or you could turn to Jeremiah 4 and verse 4 where it says this, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Israel, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. And when God demanded this transformation, when it was demanded in the Old Testament, the prophets also made it clear in their writing that it was only by God's Spirit that such a transformation could be effected. Jeremiah 31 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That which was expectation when Jeremiah wrote these words and when the other prophets wrote similar in Old Testament age has now become reality. The reality of the new covenant made possible by Jesus. And what we see inferred here in our closing verse of chapter 2 is the truth that becoming a member of God's family in the new covenant because of Jesus is not a matter of the Jewish covenant status or of carrying out the law, but of a new creation through the Spirit of God. Therefore, through the new covenant, God's promise has come to pass. The promise that was there in Jeremiah to forgive the sins of all who call on his name from those who are least to those those who are the greatest. And he has given us his Spirit to impart his, his law within us, to inscribe it on our hearts, thus making him our God and making us his people. And this new covenant should impact us in terms of how we are to live. We are to act out of covenant love. And when that comes to, to Hebron, 
for example, when it comes to the local church, when it comes to us as a a group of local believers that have come to God, we have come here bound by the new covenant. So as well as being bound to God by that covenant, we are also bound to each other. The covenant that makes us belong to God makes us belong to each other. Therefore, our commitment to each other in a local church setting is ultimately a covenant commitment. Our covenant relationship to God implies a covenant relationship to each other. God's covenant with us creates and shapes our covenant with each other. And what does God's covenant look like? It looks like a relationship founded on grace. It looks like a relationship that's marked by mercy. It looks like a relationship that at its heart is characterized by love. So when we think about the new covenant, when we think about what sets us apart as a church, it's not the mark of circumcision or uncircumcision. It's the mark of a changed heart. It's the mark of a life lived out in the new covenant. A life that gives and sacrifices and works for the betterment of the local church and the people that surround us where we sit today. Is that you? Is that me? Church, we are called to act out of knowledge. We can't possibly be saved by the law. Church, we are called to act out of faith. Our trust and our hope can't be in the law. It needs to be in the one true Savior. And church, we are called to act out of the new covenant love. A people not reliant on legalism, a people not reliant on bodily marks, but rather a people living and acting in the saving knowledge of Jesus. The one in whom we should have our faith, the one in whom has made possible the new covenant. Is that how we should live? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that we are not uh, reliant upon our works or our deeds or um, our adherence to the law. Father, we give thanks that we're not reliant on something that we know that we break so often. Father, we give you thanks that we observe that there is a new covenant and that you've made it possible through Jesus, by Jesus, through the shedding of his blood, through the bruising of his body, through him taking the punishment due us. Lord, we give you thanks for that. And Lord, we pray that our knowledge of that, Lord, we pray that our knowledge and our faith in Jesus, the only one true hope, the only Waymaker, Lord, that we would 
respond to that in acts of love and kindness and generosity of spirit toward this people, this church, this, this community of believers. Father, that we would respond in grace and in mercy to each other. Lord, that we would love one another as you have loved us. Father, we pray that you would speak deep into our hearts. And Lord, that we would respond to your goodness and your grace in the way that glorifies your name. In your precious Son's name. Amen.